How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give uh, everyone the opportunity to make sure that they are in fellowship and ready to study the word this evening. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that we can come together this evening to study your word, to reflect upon all that you have revealed to us. And at times it seems as though your word is very easy to understand, and other times it takes quite a bit of study to reflect upon all of the passages in the scripture that address a particular topic, uh, helping us to understand the significance of these topics. And, and we really can't do this without the aid of God the Holy Spirit who indwells us and fills us and by whom we walk, and he is the one who enables us to truly understand your word. Now, Father, as we come together this evening, we continue our study in Romans, specifically now coming to the passage that deals with inheritance and heirship and all that the New Testament teaches about this vital topic. We pray that you'll help and help us to understand this very clearly as we rightly divide the word of truth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are in Romans chapter 8. And I just want to uh, remind you of a little thing that I did last week. I pointed out some of the rather odd little uh, <coughs> errors of translation that have cropped up in some different uh, Bibles uh, over the years. And one was the unrighteous Bible that I mentioned last time from 1 Corinthians 6, 9. We're going to look at this passage in depth. So this is why I wanted to remind you. It was called the unrighteous Bible. It should be translated... Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And uh, this was a King James Version published by Cambridge Press in 1653. They left out the word not, so it read that, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall inherit the kingdom of God? Now that would be a actually a surprise because uh, we tend to expect the fact that the unrighteous, because they're unbelievers, that they won't inherit the kingdom. Now, why would that be a something that Paul would point out to people? Why would he address the Corinthians? Because this is a difficult passage. People think inheriting the kingdom means to be saved. But don't you think people would understand that the unrighteous aren't going to get to heaven? So why would Paul say, if, if Paul meant the unrighteous aren't going to be in heaven, why would he need to say that? Because what he's actually saying here isn't that something so obvious. So the unrighteous is not a synonym for unbeliever. It can refer to believers who are walking according to the sin nature. Now, as we were looking at our study in Romans 8, we came to this uh, verse in Romans 8, uh, 16 and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. I pointed out, and we'll review this again tonight, that there's a interpretation that's made in the translation of that verse 
that impacts how most translations punctuate the verse. And most translations punctuate it without putting a comma after God so that heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ make it appear to be synonymous terms. In actuality, they're not, as I pointed out last time, because if it were, then it makes all children heirs, and heirship is qualified by suffering with Christ. That would mean that inheritance would be a work. Inheritance would be would be something you have to would be based on something you do, suffering for Christ. It wouldn't be based on faith. It wouldn't be a gift. And this was the tenth point I made last time. Went through a whole series of about thirteen or fourteen points on inheritance. And the tenth point was the understanding the problem that some passages speak of inheritance as a gift. It's we do receive uh, some of some inheritance as part of the salvation package the instant we're saved. But there are other passages that speak of inheritance as a reward. A gift is something that is freely given. A reward is for something that is done. A reward is earned. Someone does something well and they receive a reward or a prize. If it turns out that they have cheated in the contest, then they run the risk of losing the award, um, which is the case of Lance. I just slipped my name. Lance Armstrong, uh, which is a sad case. Interesting, I was listening to someone on the radio the other day talking about the the fact that, um, and I thought, and I'd always wondered this, well, who got the prizes in all those uh, Tour de France contests that he raced in? He won. Why, did, why didn't we hear of the person second place or third place getting it? And apparently, and I, I may be wrong, I'm just repeating what I heard on the radio, most of the ones who got second or third place were also doping. So everybody was doping, so nobody get, nobody wins. So a gift is free, but a prize, a reward, uh, I mean, an, a prize or an, an award is part of inheritance, and that's something that is earned. It's something that is worked for. And that's important to pay attention in the passage we're going to look at tonight. So we see these passages like Ephesians 5.5. 5. It says, For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater. Now, that I'm going to suggest without knowing all of you very well that that pretty much covers all of us here. And that says that anyone who does that is does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of God uh, or the kingdom of Christ. Now, that's an important passage because it introduces, adds the concept of Christ or God to the, to the kingdom concept, which specifically focuses it on the millennial kingdom. But that would, that would mean that to inherit the kingdom of God, it, that that inheritance is based on something you do. Well, just three chapters earlier in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, Paul said, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So, in Ephesians 2, he says salvation is a gift, and it's free, and it's not works. 
But then we get over to Ephesians 5, 5, and inheritance in the kingdom is based on behavior. It's based on character. It's based on something other than grace. So we have a conflict here if inheriting the kingdom is a synonym for entering the kingdom, or in other words, entering heaven. Galatians 5.19 is another one of those passages that gives us a grocery list of, of sins. The works of the flesh are evident. Now, the flesh is a term for our sin nature. It's the Greek word sarx. Now, there are some adverbs, adjectives built on that, sarkinos, sarkikos, which means fleshly or flesh-like, uh, and that's a word also translated carnal or carnality. So the works of the flesh are made manifest. And then we have this list. It involves adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness. The first four are all related to some sort of sexual sins. Then we have uh, sins related to uh, God, idolatry, Sorcery, which had to do with, uh, the Greek word is pharmakeia. It's not sorcery in the sense that we think of it. It is using various hallucinogenic drugs to create an encounter through some sort of mystical experience with a, with a, uh, with a false god. So that relates to idolatry in a way. Then we have personal sins, interpersonal sins, hatred, I want you to pay attention to these. We're going to hit them again in a, a few minutes. Hatred, contentions. That's always bickering and fussing with, with each other in, a, in, a contra, uh, in the context of a congregation. Jealousies. And we, we don't have this in this congregation that I'm aware of, but there are some congregations that are so loaded with cliques and groups that individuals that that really seek to have some sort of power base in a congregation. I don't know why anybody thinks that having a position of power in a church is something worth having, but some people do, and that's the idea of of um, hatred. There's contentiousness and jealousies, jockeying for position or power or approbation in a local church outbursts of wrath. This isn't just somebody who gets irritated or loses their temper on occasion. This is, this is a characteristic where a person is just always, always um, uh, reacting in uh, incredible anger, no self-control whatsoever in terms of anger. Uh, selfish ambitions, uh, dissensions, always stirring up trouble, heresies, always running after some new doctrine. Envy, that's counterpart to jealousy, murder, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I told you beforehand. Now, Paul says, just as I told you in the past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, it doesn't say in the Greek, those who do such things, that's the Greek word poieo, but those who practice, that's proso. So this refers to a lifestyle of someone who uh, has become a believer, doesn't make sense if these people aren't really believers because you expect someone who lives this lifestyle not to go to heaven because they're a sinner. So why, if, if Paul is making an issue out of this, it's no big surprise if he's saying, uh, if he's talking about those who practice these things, if he's saying those are unbelievers. 
because we know unbelievers aren't going to go into heaven. So it only makes sense if these activities, these sins, are being committed by believers. And he's not talking about entering into heaven. He's talking about something else, something beyond just entry into heaven. Colossians 3.24 says that uh, if we are obedient and grow to maturity, that's the contest, then we will receive the reward of the inheritance. See, it's not a gift. Reward, it's something that's earned through obedience, through serving the Lord Christ in context in that last phrase. So what I concluded was that we see two categories of inheritance in the Scripture, inheriting the kingdom and inheriting salvation. And so inheriting salvation is something that's true for every believer. Inheriting the kingdom is true for believers who pursue spiritual growth and spiritual maturity and learn to serve the Lord in their life. This is what Romans eight seventeen is talking about, uh, putting the comma after heirs of God. We have two categories of heirship. Heirs of God is equivalent to inheriting salvation, and being a joint heir or fellow heir with Christ is related to suffering. Now, that doesn't mean martyrdom type of suffering. That means when you're living the spiritual life, when you're making a choice in your life between A, following your sin nature and following the world, and B, being obedient to Scripture and walking by the Spirit, we will always encounter suffering. We will always face adversity, unjust suffering because we're going against the grain. We're swimming upstream uh, against the culture. And the more the culture around us and here in the United States, our culture is becoming progressively anti-Christian because the foundation of Christian values is, of course, found in the Old Testament. And those emphasize personal responsibility in volition, emphasize marriage between a man and a woman emphasize family where you have a father and a mother and children and those are all being attacked uh, again and again and again in in subtle and overt ways in our uh, in our culture so whenever we're trying to counter that and we're trying to live our life according to the scripture we're going to face opposition in the angelic conflict opposition from the cosmic system and that's adversity It may be small adversity, it may be heavy adversity, but it's suffering with him because we're obedient to Christ and the consequences aren't pleasant. Now, the twelfth point I said was that just as Christ inherits the kingdom because of his obedience to the Father, he is resurrected from the dead and he, because of his loyalty to the Father, he is elevated to kingship this in his humanity, not his deity because his deity is eternal. But this is talking about in his humanity, when he's resurrected from the dead, ascended to heaven, he is given on the basis of having lived his life righteously in obedience to God. He's elevated and given the scepter of the kingdom as the son of David. So that's the Hebrews 1, 8, and 9 passage. To the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. 
You've loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. So the scepter of the righteousness is given because of behavior, because he lived his life in obedience to God. That took us to the 13th point, making the difference, distinction between living and reigning with Christ as seen in 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13, that reigning is based on endurance. It, 2 Timothy 2, 12, the second verse here, if we endure, we shall reign with him. See, reigning is based on doing something. Doing something is a work. If we're saved, it's by grace, not works. So reigning is you, is distinct from the salvation package. Then the 14th point was that the kingdom, inheriting the kingdom promised to those who love God, and not all believers love God. Loving God is indicated by obedience to God, which means spiritual growth. Those who are disobedient don't love God. I don't care how you feel about God. And the Bible doesn't care how you feel about God. And God doesn't care how you feel about God because over and over again it says if you love God, you obey him. If you disobey him, that means, hmm, you don't love God. So it doesn't matter how we feel or how much we say, oh, how I love Jesus. If we're not obedient, we're lying. Fifteenth point was from Esau. Esau thought that his inheritance wasn't worth much. So he was so hungry that he traded a bowl of red lentils for his inheritance. And the warning there to believers is this inheritance issue is so important. Don't squander it in this life by putting your focus and priorities on something that's insignificant and temporal. Esau was saved, I believe, but... He lost his inheritance, which was related to the um, the Abrahamic blessing. Now, all of that is sort of lead in to bring us back to where we were when we finished a week ago, because I want to look at these inherit the kingdom passages, and I think the best way to do that is by going to First Corinthians chapter uh, six and looking at this passage. There are several other passages. We've already looked at one, Galatians 5, 19 and following. There is uh, the one in Ephesians chapter 5 that uh, we talked about. There's one at the end of Revelation that we'll also bring in before we finish in Revelation chapter uh, 21, verses uh, 7 and 8. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son, but the cowardly. So the contrast is between the one who is an overcomer and the one who's cowardly, the one who will inherit all things, and the one who won't inherit all things. It's not a contrast between believer and unbeliever because that was already made at the great white throne judgment at the end of chapter 20. So this is a reward passage and it talks about the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire. And a lot of people, most people read that and say, well, that means people who are cowardly, unbelieving, murderers, sexually immoral, if they do all of those things, then they end up in the lake of fire. And that is not what that is saying at all. 
It's a misunderstanding of that word part. So let's start with 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Verse 9 says, do you not know? See, when Paul says that, he's assuming that they should know this because he's taught them in the past. He says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So right away we see that one of the key words we have to study here and understand is that word unrighteous. Now, a lot of people look at this passage because of something that's said in the first two verses, and they think that unrighteous equals unbeliever. So let's read it that way. Do you not know that the unbeliever will not inherit the kingdom of God? Sure, that's kind of obvious, isn't it? We all know that. Unbelievers aren't going to inherit the kingdom. They're not going to be in heaven. They're not going to be there. So why would Paul bring this up? That's, that's a blinding flash of the obvious. So that's just one way in which we see that uh, we sort of reduce it to absurdity, a reductio ad absurdum argument there. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Now, the way verse 11 is usually read by people is that that the congregation made up mostly of believers had all previously been um, fornicators, idolaters, thieves, covetous, etc. But now they're all believers and they're washed, they're sanctified, and justified. But that's not how this should be read because that misses the point. So let's go back and first of all, let's address this issue of unrighteous. And it really does look like the way we ought to translate that word unrighteous based on the first two verses. And remember, whenever you try to understand a word, you have to understand it in context. If you take the text out of context, you're left with a con job. And that's what happens in a lot of theology. You get conned. So we have to keep it in the context. But see, there's a broad context and a narrow context here. Context is is like the real estate law of location, location, location. You really have to pay attention to it. But there's a lot of different contexts here. We have the context of chapter 6. We have a narrower context of chapter 6, verses 7 through 11. And in chapter 6, verse Eight, or actually verse 7, you have the word wrong, which is a form of the same word for unrighteous. Shows up again in verse 8. No, you yourselves do wrong. You commit adike, unrighteous. So it's the same word. So that's a more immediate context, but it has a different meaning there. You have a broader context, which is the first five chapters of 1 Corinthians. And you have to take all that into account, and so it's not quite as simple as some people think it is. So he starts off, and the problem here is that you've got all this 
bickering and divisiveness and fussing going on inside the congregation at, at, in Corinth. And it's gotten so bad that when somebody does something to somebody else or just does something living their life, like in our culture, somebody else sees it and they just take offense. And they don't like the fact that somebody else did that. And so they're offended and they're just going to sue the other person. And so they were taking litigiousness to a whole new level. And they were taking each other to court and suing one another. Now, this is an important passage because I've heard a lot of Christians talk about the fact that we should never sue anyone. That's not what this passage is saying. This passage is talking about believers who know each other, who are taking advantage of each other, and then suing each other and going to unbelievers for resolution. It's not talking about uh, when somebody has legitimately been wronged due to any number of, for any number of reasons by a corporation or a company or, or something of that nature. Um, those, those are other kinds of lawsuits. So this is not a blanket prohibition of lawsuits. It doesn't say that. It's talking about believers who know each other, who are taking advantage of each other, rather than going to leaders in the church to resolve personal conflicts. So he says, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? So when we look at that first verse, it's obvious that unrighteous is used in context in contrast with the saints. So the saints are clearly believers in the congregation. So that would indicate that the judges possibly are unrighteous. But there's going to be another meaning to that term. So we have to be careful with it. It looks, though, that that indicates that they're unbelievers. Then verse 2 says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? See, immediately Paul puts this context of answering this question. Well, should I sue that person? I don't know if any of y'all have ever asked that question, been in a position where you've been wrong or somebody's been negligent and you've suffered financial loss and you have to contemplate, well, should I bring a lawsuit? What is, how does Paul answer that question? Now, he doesn't do what most people do and immediately deal with the immediate consequence. He goes to eschatology. Now, how many Christians in this world think, well, I don't care what happens in the future. I'm, I'm not an amill, pre-mill, post-mill. I'm a pan-mill. It'll all pan out in the end. They're just intellectually lazy. They don't want to figure out the future. But the future is the future. It'll take care of itself. But Paul says, well, wait a minute. We have to understand important things about the future. Don't you know that the saints will judge the world? See, the saints, this is a term for the sanctified one, hagioi, the sanctified ones. It's not talking about some special class of Christians. It's always used as a term for Christians who are positionally set apart to Christ. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? In the future, in the millennial kingdom, believers are going to be in a position to judge the world. They are going to have that oversight. 
So part of what's happening now is the reason you need to develop wisdom and you need to develop discernment from the Word is because this is preparing us so that in the future we can fulfill that responsibility because when you die, God's not going to blast you with a bunch of knowledge of doctrine between the time you die and the time you end up at the judgment seat of Christ and you get your responsibility distributed for the future kingdom. What you have in your soul when you die is what you're, that capacity is what you're going to have at the judgment seat of Christ. And so the Lord's going to look at us and say, well, you've got about 10% capacity here, so you're going to be, you're going to be a clerk in the lowest justice of the peace court. You're going to look at somebody else that you didn't really think too much of here on earth, and they're going to have always been at Bible class, listening to Bible studies, always applying, very quiet. And the Lord's going to say, you have a 95% capacity. You're going to be a Supreme Court judge. That's how it's going to work. And so there's going to be this, these distinctions based upon the capacity and the maturity that we develop now. And so Paul is saying, why are you going to unbelievers for this when believers are going to be judging the world in the future. That's a much greater responsibility than what these temporal magistrates have. And then he says, and if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? In other words, why are you doing this when this is your future destiny? So let's look at this word unrighteous. The Greek word is adikos. In the plural, it's adikoi, and it's an adjective that's used as a noun, stands in the place of a noun. So we talk about red states and blue states, and you're a red state. That's an adjectival description of a state. The state is Texas if it's a red state, Connecticut if it's a blue state, that kind of a thing. Those are just adjectival descriptions that we use the adjective in place of the proper noun. So this is the same kind of thing here, that unrighteous is an adjective, unrighteous people, unrighteous men, but it just uses the adjective to stand for the class. Now, on the in the blue box on the right side, I've listed definitions from three of the most respected Greek lexicons that are available. Uh, the top one is Thayer. No, and and any, any dictionary lists, uh, lists meanings in order of their priority of use. So just because the first meaning is one thing doesn't mean it always means that, but it means that more than it means than it's used to mean the second category. Second category of meaning is used more than the third category. So if you look up in the dictionary some things that have 19 meanings, well, the 15th, 16th, 17th meanings are very rare uses. They're used that way every now and then, but not all the time. Well, I want you to notice the agreement here in these three lexicons. They all list unjust as the first meaning, not unrighteous. Now, if we look at that word on the left, the A is the, in, in Greek is a negative. It's like the UN prefix in, in English. It, it's the negative. The core uh, part of the word is dikos from DK meaning righteous. So ah means un, so it simply means unrighteous. DK also means just, so it means unjust. 
So the primary use, usage is that of un, that which is unjust. So we look at this and say, and there, there does seem to be a contrast there in those first two verses. And then it goes on, if you read the context in your Bible, it says, Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life. So, and then by verse 6, we see, But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Now, there's a different word there. I don't have a slide on this, but the word there is apistoi. Now, pistos is the word for believer or belief. Uh, and it's used for the faithful one or the believer. Uh, apistoi means an unbeliever. But apistoi is not what's used up in the first, th- first two verses. Up there it's adikos, the unrighteous. So Paul seems to expand the issue in verse 6. Brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. It seems like those unbelievers could be the judges, but he doesn't really say the judges are unbelievers. That's that's an implication, and it may be right, but it could be that everybody who's sitting there and watching the judicial procedures, procedures are a lot of unbelievers. The before unbelievers doesn't necessarily mean before unbelievers, unbelieving judges. It could mean before unbelievers who are watching the whole procedure, and the judges that are here are just unrighteous or, excuse me, unjust judges. They're easily corruptible. So there's some problems with, with understanding this. The word unrighteous can refer to unrighteous unbelievers, and it can refer to unrighteous believers, unrighteous Christians. And so just because the word adikos is used doesn't mean we're justified in jumping to the conclusion that these judges are unbelievers. Now, that's a broader, broader immediate context, but there's a little bit narrower context, and that's down, and we find that down in verse 8, 9, 7, 8, 9, where we have the word wrong, which has to do also with a form of this word, adikos, the adjective. Now, you yourselves do wrong do injustice, do wrong things, and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. So doing adikos, activities classified as adikos, is an activity of these Corinthians who are clearly believers. Isn't that right? They're clearly believers. But they do unjust, they do adikos, they do wrong or unjust actions, and cheat their brethren. And immediately after saying, you're doing these unjust things to your brethren, he says, do you not know that the unjust, the wrongdoers, will not inherit the kingdom of God? So verse 8 is a much more uh, uh, focused verse, and it's the immediate context for verse 9, not verse 1. Now, if you take a look at this verse, verse 9 and 10, I didn't put 10 up on the screen, but if you look at that, you have this whole grocery list of sins. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners. Now, unfortunately, in a lot of Christendom, 
this verse and the others similar to it have been taken to indicate that people who do these things all the time are not going to go into heaven. But it seems to me that that would pretty much negate most prison ministries because most of the prisoners who are in there have had a lifestyle of these things, and some of them were believers. In fact, I know of, uh, unfortunately, a couple of pastors and a couple of seminary students who ended up committing uh, various uh, felonious crimes and ending up in prison for a length of time. And so they were believers, but they got out of fellowship, started walking according to the sin nature, and ended up in criminality. But let's, let's consider the question, does unrighteous indicate that they're unbelievers? Well, Paul addresses the Corinthians in light of their, their committing of all these acts. Just turn back with me a couple of pages to the first chapter. In the first chapter, Paul talk, starts off, he says, grace to, in verse 3, he says, grace to you from God our Father, uses, a, uses plural pronouns. He's addressing the congregation as a whole, and he's talking to everybody in the congregation as a group, and he's assuming, what? That they're all believers, and that God is the Father of all of them as believers. So he, from the very beginning, he addresses them. He's, he is assuming that everyone there that's in the church in Corinth is a believer. He says, I thank my God always concerning all of you for the grace of God which was given to all of you by Christ Jesus, that all of you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in all of you, so that all of you come short in no gift. He's assuming they're all believers. So not only are they all believers, and not only does he give them the compliments in these first nine verses, But starting in verse 10, he starts hammering them for all of their extreme sinfulness. It's not that they just committed these sins a little bit here and a little bit there. This was arguably the worst, most sinful, most self-centered, self-absorbed, narcissistic, uh, divisive congregation in the ancient world. Look at verse 10. He tells them, he says, I plead with you that there shouldn't be any divisions among you. They're, they're said to be contentious in verse 11. So in verse 10, they're, content, uh, they're uh, divisive. In verse 11, they're contentious. If you turn over to the next page, they're filled with intellectual arrogance. In 129, he says about them, no flesh should glory in his presence. They were boastful. This runs all the way through this section, this problem with with, uh, arrogance. They have intellectual arrogance. That's the whole problem in the second chapter. They're exalting human wisdom as opposed to uh, the wisdom of the word of God. Look at verse chapter 3, verse 1 through 3. He says in verse 1, I, brethren, could not speak to you. I couldn't talk to you as spiritual, pneumaticoi, which is from the root pneuma, meaning spiritual, of the spirit, but as to carnal. There's that word built on sark. Sarks was the flesh that I talked about in, first, in Galatians 5. They're, they're fleshly. They're, they're, uh, their lifestyle is produced by the sin nature of the flesh. He's got to talk to them as 
as those who live according to the sin nature, in essence. And then in verse 3, he says, for you are still fleshly. Now, are they believers? Sure, that's, he, he said, you all are uh, believers, you're, all those things related to, to them back in the first chapter. They were enriched in everything by God and all utterance and all knowledge. The testimony of Christ was confirmed in them. Uh, they were denied no gift, all of that. They're clearly believers, but they are disobedient. They are egregiously disobedient. And he says, you're still carnal for where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you. So here's this congregation, and they are characterized by envy. Envy was listed in Galatians 5.20 as one of the works of the flesh. They're characterized by strife. Strife was also listed in Galatians 5.20 as one of the works of the flesh. They are there are divisions among them. Now, that's a textual problem, but it's probably there based on the, uh, based on the majority text. And that, too, is listed in Galatians 5.20 as a work of the flesh. So here are these Christians, clearly Christians, and they're, just, they're characterized by the works of the flesh. They're, they're clearly living like unbelievers, and that's why Paul says at the end, you're be, uh, verse 3, you're behaving like mere men. Then he goes from that in the context of 1 Corinthians 3 to talking about the fact that they've been uh, trying to uh, align themselves up with different leaders. Some said they were of Paul, some of Apollos, some of Cephas. And now Paul, first of all, says, see, everybody had a different role. I uh, watered, Apollos planted, somebody else reaped the harvest. And then he says, and then he goes, shifts from an agricultural analogy to a building analogy and talks about the fact that every one of us builds in our life with various things. We have gold, silver, precious stones, and we have wood, hay, and straw. And he says, we all build, but once our work is complete, it will be manifest at the day of judgment. That's verse 13. And it will be revealed by fire. Now, he's using this as analogy just as gold is purified. You put gold in the, in the heat and the, the, the impurities burn off. That's the picture here. What's revealed by fire is the gold, silver, precious stones, the wood, hay, and straw, the dross is burned off. And so he says in verse 14, if anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. See, what do you get for a reward? You work for a reward. Is salvation a reward? No. Salvation is earned. So you work for a reward. What we do in our Christian life as we grow is we develop uh, capacity for righteous living. We develop capacity for wise living. And as a result of that, God the Holy Spirit produces in us the character of Christ. And that's the gold, silver, precious stones that is left. It's the divine good that's produced in our life by the Holy Spirit rather than human good, which is produced by our own morality and our own sin nature. So we're rewarded for what is produced in our life by by the Holy Spirit. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. So he's going to lose something. But he doesn't lose salvation because the next clause says, but he himself will be saved, yet it's through fire. So he may lose everything, but he still is saved and enters the kingdom 
but he doesn't have a reward, which is the inheritance of the kingdom. And then he says, and this is, this is really important, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Now, I talked about this a few lessons back in terms of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And here it talks, there are some people who take this, the you here, you all, as corporate and that the corporate uh, body of uh, believers is the temple of God. But all through, all the way up to this verse, those plural pronouns has been used to refer to the corporate body of the church to address er things that are true for every individual. So it's not talking about the congregation as a whole as a temple of God, but all of you as believers, each individual of you all is a, a, a temple of God for the Holy Spirit. And then there's a warning in verse 17 of divine discipline. If anyone defiles the temple of God, and that means corruption. The word there is thyro, and it means uh, corruption. And it's the same word that's translated destroy in the next phrase. If anyone defiles or corrupts the temple of God, that's carnality, basically. God will thyro him. If you thyro God, God's going to thyro you. And that basically means, if you look it up in the, in the lexicon, it means to do physical harm. And every single example of that word being used in the New Testament refers to judgment in time. Not judgment in eternity, but judgment in time. So that if somebody disciplines God, uh, or disobeys God and God brings discipline in their life, that's thyro. It's judgment here and now, not judgment off in the um, future, so it refers to a temporal judgment. Now, if you look down the next, later on in the chapter, they're boastful again, verse 21, therefore let no one boast uh, in men, for all things are yours. In 4.7, skipping down, says that you, you they're puffed up, and uh, they're boasting in verse, uh, puffed up in verse 6, boasting in verse 7, and uh, they're, they're, they're full of themselves. Then we get over into uh, Galatians, cha- I mean, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It says, it's actually been reported among you that there's sexual immorality among you. This is porneia. That's listed in Galatians uh, 5.19. They're arrogant. They're sexually immoral. And then if you go over to uh, uh, chapter 7, it talks again about sexual immorality. You get into... Uh, chapter 9, and you get into um, uh, chapter uh, 11. They're coming to uh, the Lord's table and getting drunk. When they're in, in chapter 10, they're, 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 uh, uh, they're warned not to give in to idolatry. Uh, 1014, flee from idolatry. Idolatry is one of the sins listed in Galatians 5.19. The point I'm making, and the reason you need to understand this, is because you're going to run into people again and again and again who are going to say, look, if, uh, first, first Corinthians 6 says that if you do these things, then you're not going to go to heaven. But that's not what Paul is saying at all because he's already said that the Corinthians are believers and the Corinthians are doing all of these things. This is characterizing their life. That doesn't mean God approves it. He doesn't. They are disobedient children, and disobedient children get cut off from the inheritance. 
the inheritance goes to the obedient children who grow to maturity. But the inheritance that we're talking about isn't eternal life, and it isn't eternal judgment. So Paul is saying here that don't you know that the unrighteous, the wrongdoers, in context, you yourselves do wrong. Don't you know that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? He's not talking about unbelievers because that's obvious unbelievers don't go to heaven. He's talking about believers who continue to live in carnality. And then he lists the, char- the types of sins that characterize them. And then he says in 1 Corinthians six eleven, and such were some of you. But you, you all, it returns to that, it's that plural there, such were some of all of you, some of you all, some of y'all, but y'all, all of you were washed. So right there he's talking about all of them were washed, sanctified, and justified. It's a very clear statement. Every one of them is justified. Well, wait a minute. That's not how most people look at it. So I drew these three charts to try to help explain this. And the first chart in the upper left depicts this as some, the some refers to the believers who were there. It's a small group. In contrast, the you then refers to the rest of the church. They weren't really believers. They were just professing believers. So some, would. this is how some interpret this. This is not correct. Uh, the some would be believers, some of you. But then that contradicts the second part of the verse, which says all of you were sanctified, justified, cleansed. So that doesn't work. The second way in which this is sometimes interpreted is that the some and the all are merely rhetorical words that are used, and all uh, all the people are viewed as as positionally uh, positionally saved, and that's really kind of an odd view, and it doesn't make a lot of sense either. The best view is what we see in the right: is that the sum is part of a larger group, some of you. So, if I were to pick the people who are on these front two rows over here, they would be some of you, you being the whole group some referring to these five who are sitting over here on the front two rows. That's what I'm depicting here. The sum is a subset of the larger group. The whole group is made up of believers. But some of them used to be characterized by this behavior. They're not anymore. But the rest of them are still characterized by that behavior. Does that make sense? Most of this congregation are full of divisiveness, immorality, idolatry. They're called carnal. Uh, Paul has to talk to them like babies, spiritual babies, because they're, they're still living like unbelievers, although they are believers. So 90% of them are spiritual failures. But some of them, 10%, have seen a change and transformation in their life because of the, they're walking by the Holy Spirit and they're obeying the Word of God. So when Paul says, such were some of you, uh, the some have broken out of the, be- uh, the carnal behavioral pattern and growing to maturity. Uh, the rat, but all of them were saved. 
So the ones who've broken out are the ones who are moving towards inheritance, and the ones who haven't are the ones who are still trying to go to court and being divisive and causing all kinds of problems. Now, let's just look at a couple of these other passages. In Colossians 3.23, Paul says, Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, because you know that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. So the reward is something given for service. Inheritance is something that is uh, given for service. This connects the idea of reward and inheritance together. A reward is for serving. If you don't serve, no rewards. You'll still get into heaven, but no rewards. Let me see if I have any other slides. I don't. Okay, now I think that makes that point clear. Now I want to go back and look at one thing that I mentioned earlier from the Revelation passage that some will have their part in the lake of fire. I want you to turn with me. We've gone through this before. I've covered it numerous times, but just want to remind you. In John chapter 13... Similar circumstance in that there's a group before the Lord Jesus Christ of his disciples. All of them are viewed as saved, but there's one there who's not, and that's Judas Iscariot. And if you look down to John chapter 13, uh, look at verse 5. This is a picture of Christ is pouring, pouring water into a basin to wash their feet, and he starts washing the feet with the disciples and and uh, toweling them dry. And he came to Peter, verse 6, and Peter said, Lord, are you washing my feet? In other words, you're not going to wash my feet. Not you, Lord. And Jesus said, what I'm doing, you do not understand now, but you'll understand after this. Let me, let me do this because there's a reason I'm doing this. It has a symbolic teaching value. But Peter said, no, Lord, you're never going to wash my feet. In verse uh, In verse 8, and Jesus said, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Now, that's the same word part that's used over in Revelation 21. And it's a Greek word, meros, which was a word used in a legal context, in a will or a testimony, to indicate the share of the inheritance that would go to somebody. You get this part, that person gets that part, this other person gets this other part. That's the idea. But the way we use the word part in English, it indicates also a role. I'm going to try out for this part in the play. And so people read this as saying that, well, Peter won't get a part in the kingdom. In other words, he won't be there. He won't go to heaven. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, if you don't let me wash your feet, which is a picture of ongoing cleansing, through confession, and if you don't cleanse your sins through confession, there can't be any spiritual growth. You'll just be spiritually studied. If you don't confess your sins and have regular cleansing of sin, then you won't have an inheritance in the kingdom. You won't have a share in the inheritance. And Peter understood that, and he said, Well, Lord, don't just wash my feet. Give me a complete bath. Put me in the shower. And then Jesus replied in verse 10, He who is bathed, That's a different word. It indicates a complete total bath from the Greek word luo, needs only to wash nipto, partially cleanse his feet, but is completely clean. And then he says, and you all are clean, but not all of you. 
And then John tells us that the reason he, what he meant by that is that one of them in verse 11, for he knew who would betray him. One would betray him. So for that reason, he said they weren't all clean. So having understood that, that, that part means a share of the inheritance. When we go to that passage in Revelation 20, uh, 21, where we read this the statement related to the future judgment, the future role of believers in the eternal state. He who overcomes, that's the one who has earned the victor's wreath, shall inherit all things. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, Sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their meros, their part, their share, their inheritance share in the lake which burns with fire. It's not that they go to the lake of fire, but that these rewards that would have been given them, their share of the inheritance, is is thrown into the lake of fire where it's destroyed. Not them. It's their inheritance that's destroyed. They go in to heaven Yet it's through fire, just like at the judgment seat of Christ. So those who fail to be victors lose something. They lose their rewards and they're destroyed in the lake of fire. But those who are victors, those who are uh, overcomers, they will have rewards at the judgment seat of Christ and their maturity determines their role, their responsibility in the eternal kingdom. So when we take that back to Romans 7, or excuse me, Romans 8, just to wrap this up, the heirs of God are all believers, but the joint heirs with Christ are those who persevere and endure through suffering so that they will be glorified together with Christ in the kingdom. Now, verse 18 is going to introduce the topic of suffering, and we'll come back and finish that and get into that next time. Father, thank you for letting us get into this scripture tonight. And it's it's a little complicated, but if we think about it, study it, and hear it frequently, then we come to understand that inheritance goes to the one who runs well and a loss of inheritance for the one who doesn't. But all are believers and all have eternal life. And eternal life is a gift, but the rewards are earned. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand this clearly. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.